morning storyline. It's so good to be together. Thank you for being here. Can we just have a hand for our band again? They're just so amazing. Oh, I can't tell you. My, not that I don't um, love it when everyone else shows up, but it's so fun for me to be here in the morning and listen to them practice. They're just so good. It's so, so fun. So um, these are the dog days of winter, aren't they? Uh, they really are. And, and I, I know that some of you like winter, and so I just want to make this commitment to um, those of you who like winter. I'm praying for both of you, okay? Uh, wow. Somebody sent me this quote this week. If you choose not to find joy in the snow, you will have less joy in your life, but still the same amount of snow. <laughs> and I was looking for the reply, punch you in the face button. And I don't have that on my email, but I just hate it when somebody, like, proves me wrong, and they did, because um, there's really nothing we can do about it, right? But at least the Winter Olympics have started. Are there any fans? Yeah, okay. They're, they're kind of fun. Now, the um, New York Times did a big spread on the uh, Winter Olympics and their athletes, and they did this story, and I never even realized this until I read this story, about how scary all of the winter sports are, right? They all have this in common. They ask all these athletes, the skiers, the ski jumpers, the snowboarders, the speed skaters, the bobsledders, they all ask them this same question. Does fear play a role in your sport? And every single one of them said, yes, absolutely, it does. We all know, I was really uh, surprised to hear that. They all said, we all know that everybody is really, really scared. But, so I'd never really put that together before, that these winter sports really are scary with Maybe just this one exception. Okay. It's kind of weird to watch people flipping through the air 50 times and then cutting over to that sport, right? Like, I'm super happy that they won. I'm really happy for them. But how is curling a sport, right? Look, anything that I could do at the Olympic level should not be in the Olympics. Almost anyone can do that sport. My wife, maybe not, because sweeping's involved. But, you know, I luck. I cleared that with her ahead of time. So get off my back. That's just a joke. She knows how to sweep, I think. So anyways, here's the thing. We all know for sure, we all know for sure that fear is a very powerful emotion. It is a very powerful emotion. It paralyzes us sometimes. It motivates us other times. Fear gets our attention, regardless of what setting it comes in. And to a large degree... What God has invited us to do, to try and be and try to become together, remains an enormous challenge, yet this incredible chance to live a life of love and to love the life we live. And that means that we're learning together to, to face our fears, and the fears that we have in life, with life, about life, and press on together with this thing that we've called a faith in the grace of God, okay? But one of the universal fears that, that I think that all human beings struggle with is the um, fear of exclusion. And so um, we desperately want to belong. That we see that going back. Uh, anthropologists see that in ancient civilizations. Like there's this desperate need to belong. And this is why things like peer pressure is so powerful in teenagers' lives, why, why families can have such an enormous control over us. Um, and we call it tribalism, because sometimes it's a literal tribe, sometimes it's your family, sometimes it's a peer group, it can be a religious community. Anytime any of those things, like 
kind of dangle this threat of exclusion in front of us, we, it's hard to even know, like, am I really thinking this or feeling this myself? Or am I being manipulated? And so last week was really interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody, and they, and they asked me, and I get this question all the time, like, okay, I heard you're a part of this storyline thing. What is it, and what is it about? And I'm always fascinated to hear how I answer that question just off the top of my head, because anything could happen, right? And so I found myself saying something like, we're a community who we're trying our best to live in and then live out the grace of God. And one of the things that that means, and there's many things that that means, but one of the things that that means is that we can't use fear or the threat of exclusion to try to kind of like conjure up some kind of conformity. That would be a false community, and that's not what we're after. It's not what we believe God has called us to. And it, um, afterwards, it reminded me of one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's not the topic of today's talk, but just a kind of an introduction. One writer kind of described what I think is our mission like this. God is love. And when we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. Now, this way, love has the run of the house and becomes at home and mature in us so that we're free of worry on Judgment Day and our standing in the world is identical with Jesus's. There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, a fear of death, fear of judgment, is one not fully formed in love. We, though, are going to love. Love and be loved. First we were loved, now we love. He loved us first. It's such a beautiful and soaring passage, and I think such an inspiration and storyline We are on a mission to experience and enjoy and embody and then extend that message of God's love and grace. And the fearlessness of absolute belonging that comes with it. The belonging comes before the believing. And then the believing comes before the becoming. And that is what we believe is the order of what... God calls his glorious gospel of grace in the Bible. So as we begin this new series this month of talks, I wanted to remind us of this dream that God's given us, like why we're here, what we're doing together. And even though um, we know that life can, in very real terms, feel like the dead of winter, and it certainly, our lives can look very scary, a lot like this, right? Within the love of God together, Life can be lived a lot more like this. Here's some curlers celebrating, right? That's what it can feel like together. So uh, we just ended a three-month series on the Beatitudes. uh, And these were the opening lines to Jesus's, the first words he ever spoke in public in what is now we call the the Sermon on the Mount. And I should pause, and I I want a little commercial here. I should pause and thank you all again and remind us that that what we do here on Sunday mornings in the gathering is it's a, commu- it's a very communal event. And that, that is, I'm not up here deciding what to talk about and then handing out answers. I'm wondering out loud for us together to start a conversation 
And the topics and the ideas very much come from all of us together. So the gathering team, our role is to lead us in this hour together really by following the communal heart of all of us together. Because the comments and the songs and the scenes and the passages that flow from you in the form of conversations and texts and emails is what starts every Sunday morning. That's where they come from. As well as the questions and the feedback and the critiques, too, that we get. All of those come together, and, and that is how God leads us as a community. And that's always been a part of our culture. I know it's a little bit different, but we've found it to be, I think, very enriching to, to, to move forward that way together. So I might be the only one speaking on a Sunday morning from up front, but I'm really sharing what I'm trying to do is share what God has put on our hearts together. So thank you so much. And, and I hope you caught this line from the second song. I picked it out on purpose. Um, if you don't speak out, we can't hear it. So our love is always here. It's here in spirit. Really, I truly, I want to hear, we want to hear from you. Ideas, thoughts, suggestions, pushback, feedback, because that is how we discern how God is leading us, okay? So as the pandemic, we, we have groups, um, Norman mentioned these, that get together to speak out and hear from one another. And as the pandemic winds down, hopefully very soon, um, we're hoping that more of our groups will begin to reopen and we'll see more and more of that. So where are we headed now? Well, once again, the idea came from the community. Several folks mentioned to me during the Beatitudes how cool it was to study the very first things that Jesus said in public. And then a couple folks mentioned that wouldn't it be really interesting to take a look at what was the first thing written in the Bible, what to, in the New Testament, to take a look at. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, but I want to give a, just a real quick um, little background on the Bible itself before we do that. So the Bible is made up of two sections. It's kind of divided, not perfectly in half, but there's two sections or testaments. The Old Testament alone, there on the left side, and all those books in it, are known as the Jewish or the Hebrew Bible. And when you add the right side together there, the New Testament, the Old Testament and the New Testament together make what we call the Christian Bible, okay? Now, just on the right there, the New Testament um, is made up of the Gospels. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the story of Jesus' life. Uh, we were in Matthew for the last three months, looking at the Beatitudes. Okay, The next book there is the book of Acts. That's the story of the first followers of Jesus. And then the rest of the New Testament is really a collection of letters. Sometimes they're called epistles. Um, but most of them were written by a man named Paul. He's also called the Apostle Paul. And you can see those there. John, can you bring up that? There it is. So um, you see all the, the, he wrote actually the majority of the New Testament, this one man, the Apostle Paul. And we now know that it was one of his letters that was the very first thing written in the New Testament that will end up in the New Testament. It wasn't the first thing that happened. The first thing that happened was um, the events that happened in the gospel. But the first thing that anyone actually wrote down to others about making the way of Jesus a way of life was from the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. So about halfway down that, I circled that in red there, that is called Galatians now. 
okay? So before we jump into the content of this letter, let's just say a word about context, okay? And so we always need, we always do this, by the way, we always need the when, where, and why of context. Anytime you're in a conversation, you're reading a book, you're studying history, we need the when, where, why of context to understand the what of content, okay? And again, we do this in real life all the time, and when we don't, when we fail to, when context, when we don't get the context right, we get really confused with the content, okay? I'll give you an example. About uh, three years ago, my daughter was playing her, in her very first beach volleyball match, okay? Here she is um, playing. That's the picture there on the left is her in Birmingham, jump serving. That was actually on the, can I brag for a second? That was on the NCAA website for a long time. That was their background on the NCAA website. It's a beautiful picture of my daughter. And she, um, it's definitely not a winter sport, thank goodness, right? So her team was ranked 20th in the country, and they were playing that weekend Florida State, who was ranked number one in the country. And I couldn't be there because I was working. And so Lisa was um, FaceTiming me the game while I'm at work, right? And I'm desperate to try and watch this, but I need to be discreet. So I've got one earbud in, and uh, I, I've got my phone propped up on my table because, you know, I'm supposed to be teaching. Now it's PE, and the kids are playing badminton, right? And so I'm, like, trying to, like, look around and cheer them on, but I'm really looking at my little uh, phone, you know, watching her play. And so several times I got really excited. I'm like, yes! You know, and the kids look over and like, Mary just hit the badminton. Like, what's the big? She hit the birdie. It's not that big a deal, right? Sheesh, Mr. Gath, right? And they were all confused by my reactions to how they were playing badminton because they didn't get my context I was in, right? They're just playing this polite, rather lazy game of badminton, and I'm like in full-on dad mode, like watching my little girl's college debut against a national powerhouse, and she won, right? Right, so cool. And I go cuckoo, right? And the kid, why had one kid goes, gosh, Mr. Gather, I did not know you loved badminton this much. <laughs> right? I do love badminton, but not that much. So to get the most out of to anything, we have to understand the context. And so if we're going to understand the content of Galatians, we need to know more about the context, Okay. So a little bit about the context of this, the first thing written in the New Testament of the Bible. So Galatia was a region of what is now the country of Turkey. Again, I circled it there in red. Paul wrote this letter. The Apostle Paul wrote, keep in mind, Jesus was crucified around the year 30 to 33. Paul wrote this letter. Uh, one of my favorite um, scholars says it could, could have been as early as the year 45, but it was probably more like... in between the year 50 to 60, okay? He wrote this letter to these first followers of Jesus in Galatia. And this is the most important part about this context. Um, If you're going to understand why Paul seems so agitated and excited as we read through this letter, it's written to these people in Turkey, okay? And they are Gentile followers of Jesus. In other words, they weren't like Jesus was, like Paul was, like all the first disciples were, like all of the first followers of Jesus were, these followers weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles, okay? 
So that's the biggest part of the context that we need to know. And without that context, like, you read Galatians and you think, well, this is like a nice game of badminton, okay? But it's not. It's much more like watching your daughter play beach volleyball, okay? It's super, super intense. There's a lot of very important things going on in here. I'm not a scholar. I'm not going to pretend to try to speak to all these things. Again, I'm just trying to start a conversation here for the next few weeks or for however long we decide to be in Galatians, okay? So, but Paul is intense here. And one writer described it like this. Wherever Paul went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go to speak about the Bible, they serve tea, right? And I know the feeling, okay? But I think that's a good introduction to the book of Galatians or the letter of Galatians because if we really get it, if we really understand what Paul is saying here, it could cause a dramatic, like a riotous change in our life. And if we don't, it's much more like sipping tea, okay? So we've pointed out many times in the past that often Jesus would say or do things that we now look at and we go, oh, that was so nice. Oh, that was so beautiful and so loving, like touching a leper, like forgiving a prostitute, like talking to a woman of an, at all in public, or playing with children. And we think, oh, that's so cool. That is so nice. But in that context, there were people who saw him do that and wanted to kill him for it. In fact, they did kill him for it, okay? So, and we saw that in the Beatitudes as well, the very first things that Jesus said. And now here we're going to see in Galatians, the first thing written in the New Testament, all right, the same thing, this kind of intensity that really stirs things up. Now, Galatians has a few themes in it. We're going to touch on those over the course of the next few weeks, but by far the most important theme and the one that the other themes kind of build on is this idea of the grace of God or what we often refer to as the gospel of grace, that there's nothing you can do to get God on your side because he's already on your side, full stop. There's nothing we can do, okay? And Paul wastes no time at all getting to his main concern. After a few seconds, after a few words of, of greeting and introduction, these are the first words ever written in the New Testament of the Bible. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul jumps in. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Jesus and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus. Now, other translations of this word astonished say things like surprised, astounded, marvel, shocked. Paul is clearly very upset about folks, somebody coming along and changing the gospel of grace. So, you see, that, and that's what happened. After Paul leaves Galatia, uh, a group of Jewish believers come up from Jerusalem, and they share, uh, they, they come to these people, and they basically say to these new followers of Jesus, look, Paul only gave you part of the story. 
He only gave you the, you know, the part that Jesus is the Messiah. He died for your sins. He was raised again on Easter. And he told you that was, the, that was basically the thing. And that's not. There's other things that you've got to do. You actually, there are things you have to do to get God on your side. You have to keep all the laws and all the rules of Judaism. Okay? And these folks are like, well, now what do we do now? So when Paul found out about that, he flipped out. He flipped out, and this letter is a long way of him saying, no, no, that isn't true. Don't believe it. The second you add anything other than Jesus and the grace of God to what, to what is redeeming us, you're ruining it. You're turning this just into another religion, into another way to earn or deserve God's love and favor. And the way he puts it is, that's no gospel at all, okay? So Paul's insisting, what I told you at first is the real thing. And it isn't about religion. It is about a love relationship. Unfortunately, this morning, I asked Sam and Luke, because we're simulcasting this now, too. I asked them, hey, guys, you can turn that on already. They're like, oh, it's on. I'm like, oh, because I was up here doing, I was dancing (laughs) while they were practicing. (laughs) Now I know it's out there someplace, and it's never going away. Oh, goodness gracious. All right, so you see, Paul was beside himself. He was absolutely beside himself because he was convinced that Jesus and grace was the real thing. Jesus and, and grace is the real thing. And his gospel of grace could change everything and everyone. Like, it's going to cause a riot in our lives, in our hearts, in the world. This is not just like sipping the tea of some new religion. And the real thing about having a relationship with Jesus is it's going to change everything. So he was just adamant. And it caused him, it motivated him to write what will become the very first thing, the oldest document of the New Testament. So these other teachers, we'll call them, were basically claiming that this new religion of Jesus. So they come in after Paul and they and they go Paul only told you the whole part of the story. This is how this new religion works. And I'm trying to summarize it, but this is basically what they said. Step 1 is to believe, okay? As in acknowledge in your brain, assent, agree with that Jesus is the Messiah, okay? And step 2 is obey. All right? Now you need to follow all the rules of Judaism, okay? You need to take on this religion now that now claims that we've found the Messiah. And if you get step one correct and you um, attain step two, then in exchange for those two things, you get number three. You're saved. You're redeemed. You are however you want to put it, and different people put it in different ways. Um, but you get a ticket to heaven, when you die, whatever. Paul disagreed so profoundly with this, okay? He disagreed so profoundly, he put it in the strongest possible terms that he could think of. So, in fact, one of the laws, probably the law that kind of um, typified, was the metaphor for, the, for all the other laws that you had to follow that these new teachers were teaching. They were saying, if you're going to follow Jesus, you had to be circumcised, now, they were saying this to adult men. Now, that's way scarier than a winter sport, okay? <laughs> but but Paul, 
Paul was opposed to this idea, and not just because he thought it would be bad for business, right? But he said, if you add obedience, if you add obedience as a requirement to get God on your side, later in this letter, he, he's, so, he's so upset about this idea, he goes, you'll, you'll ruin it, you'll turn it into just another religion. This is what he wrote. He put, why don't these agitators, these new teachers, obsessed as they are about circumcision, go all the way and just castrate themselves, <laughs> right? Now, I'll bet you've never seen that verse on grandma's pillow, right? <laughs> or like one of these wall hangings. Have you know these decorative wall hangings? Um, have, okay, you seen that? I'll bet, can you imagine seeing this verse on there? Can you bring up the next one, John? One more. Can you imagine that, like over someone's couch? not good. It's not a good look. All right. That's a verse in the Bible, people. All right. So anyways, you start to get the point like, wow, he is not happy. Paul, and what is he so upset about? Right. So Paul knew if this teaching was accepted, that you had to add these things to following Jesus, to get in, to be approved of, to get God on your side, that the way of Jesus would just devolve into another religion, one of many in the world. Nothing at all like the real thing, okay? Nothing at all of the real thing, of what Paul's going to call later in some of his letters, and I love this, God's glorious gospel of grace. God's glorious gospel of grace. So Paul's going to insist in many other places in the New Testament that this is how it goes, to establish a relationship with God. First, God rescued us. That's the first thing that happened. God rescued us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and our only part to play in that is to accept it. It's to accept our acceptance, to, to reach out to the hand that's already reaching out to us. That there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we did, there's nothing that, that w- would keep God from coming to rescue us, and there's nothing that we did to get God to come to rescue us, okay? Second thing that happens is, it, it's, except that it's turn to God, trust in God. Stop, turn, and trust in God. What we sometimes call believe, okay? Believe the rescue represents God's love for us. That's what it means, I think, to be saved, if you will, okay? And it's the result, that is the result of genuinely trusting in God's rescue and love for us is to, what is the next thing, and that is to begin to be transformed. Now you start to live differently, okay? So you can see Storyline even got our belong, believe, become, that's the, where we get the order. Belong first. Trust. Believe second. And then become. Religion flips that. You've got to become first. Then, if you become, if you behave, and you believe right, then you can belong. And I'm, next week, we're going to talk about how that distorts everything in our lives including when we try to love people. 
Because now we're trying to prove something to ourselves, to them, and to God. It's just a test. And now I'm hoping we can start to get a feel for why Paul is so upset about this. Why he's so upset about this, okay? So what Paul says in that third step in another letter is he's going to say, yes, your life will change. Yes, your life will change when you accept God's rescue. Absolutely, you will live differently. You will, t- you will treat your time, your, your time, your talent, your treasure. All of that's going to, you're going to live that out differently. But it's going to be an obedience that, that he calls it, he says it this way, that comes from faith. Not an obedience that comes for salvation. It's so different. But the, the hard part is, is that in both versions of these Gospels, the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ, and if you will, the religion of, we might call it like churchianity, they, they use the same words, right? They use the same words and concepts, believe, obey, saved. But they're not the same thing. They're not. One is a dreadmill of religion, and the other is freedom. The other is freedom. So years ago, um, and it makes all the difference. Years ago, I was talking to a young couple, a young married couple, and they were struggling. And um, because Lisa and I have a perfect marriage, (laughs) we sometimes uh, chat with young couples. And this husband was complaining that he was doing that. (laughs) Oh, boy, young husbands. My goodness. Hang in there with us, right? Uh, He was complaining that he was doing everything right and she didn't appreciate it. And I asked for an example. And he said, well, I brought her flowers on Valentine's Day. And she jumped right in. And I told you, thank you. Now you tell him what you said. And the guy, just as proud as can be, said, I said, no need to thank me. That's what I'm supposed to do on Valentine's Day. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong answer. Right? Like, now, guys, there is normal guy dumb. And then there is just stupid. Right? And that was stupid. Like, that was just super stupid. That, now, that is not a relationship this young husband was describing. That's an arrangement. That's a trans, it's a religion. It's a religion. The husband was describing a transactional arrangement between two parties, which is not what she was interested in, right? And if he knew himself, it's not what he was interested in either. And What these other teachers that came after Paul were doing is really in every other religion, let me just add that, is just some version of this, this or that way to transact with God. And this religion says, no, the transaction looks this way. This religion says, no, no, it looks this way. And another religion says, no, it looks this way. That's what religions are. Different flavors of what you have to do to get God on your side. So that then he'll rescue you or make it rain or make your crops grow. It's a dreadmill. You can't get there from here is what the Bible is telling us, is what the gospel of grace is telling us. So God, you know, the religion is what do you require us to do so that we, what, what do we have to do for you? So you'll give us what we want from you, right? That's what it is. And it will kill us. It will absolutely wear us out. But in the first words ever written down in the New Testament, Paul is desperate to see us avoid 
that kind of religious transaction with God. He is insisting that the way of Jesus is about a loving relationship with God, and that, yes, that will change us. It will transform us, but not because we have to. to, It's because we get to. And I suggested to this young husband that there certainly are parts of marriage that you just have to do what you're supposed to do even when you don't feel like it, like gladly be the last one out of every church service party and get together while your spouse says a 45-minute goodbye to absolutely everyone as a random example, okay? <laughs> but the, the underlying motivator, even on those days while you're waiting by the door for hours, is, isn't duty, it's delight. It isn't duty, it's beauty right? So even when I'm standing at the door going, oh my God, is she going to, is she going to, yep, she's going over to say goodbye to people that she has to meet first to then say goodbye to them. There's something in me that goes, I love that so much about her. (laughs) And the game is being on, on my DVR. And so all is not lost, right? Right. So St. Augustine, one of, one of the giants of the Christian faith, put it this way. Love God and then do what you will. Love God and then do what you will. But you see, when you love God, what you will is going to change. Right? Okay. So, um, we're going to change because we want to. So, Paul, later in this letter, put it this way. In Jesus... There is no circumcision or uncircumcision. The only thing that counts is faith, this trust in God's rescue and love for us, and his, this trust in his grace, expressed or lived out or obeyed as love. My, the first, that, that is the verse that I walked through the doors into a relationship with Jesus with. Galatians 5, 6. That's the one that, got, that broke me. Like, I, I'm giving my life to him. Galatians 5, 6, right there. The way of Jesus is not the dead and the dreadful religion of duty. Like, believe and obey, and then you're saved. It's, living, it's a living and joyful relationship of beauty, except the rescue. Trust is love and be transformed. Be transformed in and out and all around your life. That is the glorious gospel of God's grace. So yes, to follow Jesus, we're going to change just like falling in love and getting married changes us. It changes how we think about life, how we live life. In a very real sense, our old life is gone, right? If you compare this to marriage, our new life begins. Are we giving up stuff when we get married? Yes, of course, absolutely. We're going to talk about this more this month, but we are freely giving up our freedom, not out of duty, out of delight. Years ago, I was having a conversation with a Young Life kid of mine who I just adored, loved this young man. We were at Young Life camp in the mountains of Colorado, And he said to me, I believe in God, but I certainly don't want a relationship with Jesus because I'm afraid he'll ask me to be a missionary. That's what he said, right? And I knew this young man's parents very well. 
okay? In fact, his dad was a local pastor in town, a man I admire enormously to this day. And I told, I told this young man in that cafeteria, in this camp cut into the side of the Rocky Mountains, that what you're talking about is religion, where you don't do things where, I'm sorry, where you do things you don't want to do for God in exchange, and he does thin things for you. But you don't have to worry about that. Because to follow Jesus means the way you'll know you're supposed to be a missionary and not an engineer, because that's what he, want, he said he wanted to be. I told him is, the way you'll know, you'll want to be. You'll want to be. The love of God, your love for God, will lead you where you need to go. Now, that doesn't mean easy. It doesn't mean comfortable. Not at all. But it does mean, as Paul put it elsewhere, that we live a life compelled by love. Compelled by love. And it was like the sky parted for this young man. Like tears filled his eyes. He'd been fighting religion his whole life. But when he saw the real thing, he jumped for it. Right then, he accepted his acceptance. He recognized the rescue of Jesus as the invitation to a relationship and not a religion. Thank you, guys. Beautiful. Before we got anything right, before you did anything good, in fact, while we were all totally lost, God came to rescue us. That's the gospel of grace. And it's the reason that Paul begins the very first words of the New Testament like this. Jesus gave himself for us to rescue us from our sins. This is not just a new way to sip the tea of religion. This should cause a riot in our life. This isn't duty. It's about beauty. This isn't duty. It's about delight. It's about love transforming us from the inside out. Years after I spoke with that young man in that cafeteria at that Young Life camp, I got a postcard from him. He was in the Dominican Republic. It said, hi, Mike and Lisa. I hope you're well. I thought you'd get a kick out of knowing I did become an engineer and a missionary. He said, my wife and I are in the Dominican Republic designing and building a Young Life camp. That's what love can do. What seemed like fear, what controlled him, what kept him away, what was so scary, what once looked like this dutiful sacrifice when it was all just a religion to this young man became a beautiful act of love by, with, for, and through God's gospel of grace. And so he freely gave up what he once thought was freedom to become truly free, which is where Paul is going to take us next week in this soaring and beautiful letter and the first thing ever written in the New Testament. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and this opportunity to be together. And we thank you for loving us first, for the rescue for rescuing us as we are before we did one thing right or anything good and for coming to us and, and, and for inviting us to love you back. I pray that you'd help us to see and savor your goodness for us this week and that we would receive our lives, every breath, every heartbeat, like flowers from someone who loves us deeply.
and keep us from the dead religion of fear and of duty. Change our hearts to delight in you. There's nothing like the real thing of your gospel of grace. My prayer is that we leave here this morning. You would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.